Hello friends, I'm Ashish Dabari, founder and CEO of Axiomize, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. If you're listening to us for the very first time, this is our regular weekly podcast. And for the listeners who've been used to our podcast, welcome back. I'm really excited today to welcome a guest to our podcast, Harry Foster, Chief Scientist at Mentographics. We have a lot of interesting conversation to follow, friends. So welcome, Harry. Thank you. So you're the chief scientist at Mentor and sounds like um, sounds like an uber lord um, at all things technical. Um, so I, I, I've known you for a number of years, but can you tell us how you ended up pursuing science as a career and ended up in VLSI? Yeah, so uh, let, let me uh, basically go back to the first part of the question about, you know, uh, the uber lord uh, thing, that the, the role of chief scientist. And... That actually happened with uh, the general manager and senior vice president at the time at Mentor was Robert Holm. Uh, he since has retired, but he was concerned about uh, there wasn't anybody looking over the horizon in terms of medium and long range trends, challenges, and opportunities. And he was afraid we'd miss something. So he would ask, he asked me if I'd fill that role. And, and uh, that's basically what I do today. It's, it's bridging these industry relationships with academia and research. Um, and this has led to, by the way, a lot of the industry trends that I've been involved in over the years. But concerning uh, how did I pursue uh, uh, sciences, uh, and that itself is kind of a funny story because I actually started my academic career uh, as a music student. and. Uh, like many music students, it comes a point in time where you ask yourself the question, do I really want to eat when I grow up? And so, uh, humor aside, I made the decision to switch uh, uh, to uh, sciences. And the reason there's actually a correlation between math and music, uh, a lot of people talk about this. And, and so, I uh, changed to electrical engineering with uh, a minor in math, and I have no regrets about that decision today. Excellent. Um, I have heard this kind of a story uh, from about Donald Knuth. Uh, you might have heard of him in computer science, Stanford University professor. He also had a lot to do with music, maths, and computer science. So it looks like they're quite closely related, uh, these threads. Um, when did you actually join Mentor? I joined uh, 14 years ago in 2016. And um, there, by the way, the reason the reason I, I joined Mentor was that there are a lot of brilliant people at Mentor, and they, and they all share the same passion that I do. And it's more than just selling tools, it's uh, wanting to change the world. Um, and the key word here, I think, is passion. Uh, you know, I always say that people without passion are boring, and certainly many of my uh, colleagues are not boring. Um, and so they have passions and algorithms and, and research. And then, then there's others that have passions in like, uh, uh, industry standards, uh, creating new industry standards. And another set of people that I've worked with uh, have passions in terms of education and maturing the industry in terms of skills. So on a typical day, what gets you out of your bed every morning? So you wake up and what are the things that you seem quite excited about during your day? Because 16 years at Mentor Graphics and presumably you have been in other companies before um, such a long career you have had. Um, how do you keep yourself going on and on? I, th I think it's a combination of all these uh, things that I just mentioned. For example, the um, 
uh, you know, I, I really do have this passion in terms of education, my involvement with the Verification Academy. Um, and it's, it's actually interacting with uh, industry people, uh, customers, and, and, and figuring out what are a lot of their challenges in terms of uh, uh, successfully adopting these things, and how can we address that through uh, education. So that's, that's uh, one of my biggest passions right there. Yeah, I'm glad you touched about Verification Academy. So if I'm not wrong, you are one of the founding members of the Verification Academy. And uh, also, I suppose you have been um, involved with Accelera for a very long time. So tell us a little bit about how you've been involved with Accelera, because it's a very important organization um, shaping up so many of the different standards that we all end up using in industry and you guys build software around it. So I, I actually don't know that much about your involvement with Accelera. And I think a lot of our listeners might be interested to know your journey with Accelera. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my... I got involved um, with Acceler back in the late 90s, uh, in late 90s, 2000 timeframe. And, and what happened was that there was this interest in developing a, uh, uh, basically a property language, which ultimately became PSL. And, and so I participated in this, and then I was asked if I wouldn't mind leading the uh, working group, the IEEE working group. It was Acceler at that time. Uh, uh, a working group on uh, a property specification language, as we know as PSL, and and so I was involved in that, and and uh, and then that led into work with system barrel load uh, assertions, as as, uh, as as you know, the PSL uh, basically uh, semantics uh, were aligned with system barrel load assertions. At the same time, I was at um, Hewitt Packard. I uh, created what became known as the OVL, which Accelerate uh, ultimately create, uh, turned into a standard. And this is the Open Verification Library. Uh, and that has an interesting story itself. Well, the reason I developed that was that at this period of time in the uh, late 90s, I was evaluating a number of formal tools that were coming about from various startups. And each one of these startups had their own proprietary uh, property language. And that was frustrating because every time I evaluate a new tool, I had to go in there and rewrite the cryptic notation for these temporal logics, uh, these proprietary languages that were being developed. So I introduced this uh, abstraction layer that had clear semantics on specific properties. And, and then I was able to create a library of basically properties. And when I evaluate a tool, all, all I had to do was update the uh, library with the, their particular notation and I can very quickly evaluate different tools. But the interesting thing we found was that engineers, uh, they had no interest, uh, design engineers had no interest in uh, these <laughs> yeah. uh, model checking tools, yeah. but uh, they were putting these assertions and properties in their, in their design and running the simulation. So they were getting benefit in terms of debug. Uh, but anyway, that led into the OVL. The OVL was donated to Accelerate, and Accelerate, uh, 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 you know, ultimately uh, standard, yeah. uh, standard on that. So this is really fascinating, Harry, because um, you know I've been associated with formal verification for some time, and. I've used Intel's proprietary languages as part of my PhD work, and you're absolutely right. There seem to be quite a few languages, and I think not many people appreciate um, 
I suppose even in the academic side of formal verification and computer science is that these, these contributions, like you've pointed out, the invention of OBL, um, which, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, what's the big deal about this another language? It was just another language, but it was not just another language because this enabled a lot of designers to catch on with writing assertions. And I remember back in the days I used to work at ARM, they've had a big history of using OVLs and I'm, I'm sure ARM wasn't the only one. Um, and these these milestones, I think we, we don't actually know them very well. So actually I'm very um, thankful to you to, to bring it out today um, because th these are real solid milestones that have enabled so many of us in the industry um, to start understanding the impact of assertions even in simulation, never mind formal, right? Um, and that's the... yeah, uh, yeah. In, in fact, uh, I know that one of the reasons ARM was interested in OVL was that they wanted to ship IP with checkers embedded in them. That they, they could basically check the integration of the IP uh, and and determine was it an integration problem or is it really a design problem. It made made uh, them a lot more productive in terms of uh, engaging with their customers. Yeah, absolutely. So um, tell us a little bit more about your role at Verification Academy and, you know, from the point of when it came into being and to where it is now, what has changed and t tell us what's going on at Academy these days. Well, so the Academy idea, uh, I started about 2007, 2008 timeframe. And, and what happened was I had just finished one of the industry studies that I do periodically about every two years. And, and what I found somewhat surprising was that there was a lot of low adoption of what I call just fundamental techniques, for example, code coverage. Mm -hmm. At that period of time, it was like only 45% of the industry had adopted it. <laughs> and I'm kind of scratching my head thinking, wait a minute, this has been around since the early 90s. There's a low adoption of this as well as many different techniques. And I then came to the realization that it, it wasn't so much a technology aspect of lack of adoption. It was a lack of understanding on, in terms of process and methodology. How do I integrate this in the flow? And so I thought, you know, if I could mature people in, in terms of skills of, of that type of understanding, we could increase adoption of these different techniques. And so, and that's what we've done. In fact, today we have over 62,000 members. It's wow. the, uh, yeah, it's the uh, largest community of uh, verification engineers in, in, in anywhere, you know. Uh, and we're constantly expanding. We, we uh, started out with a bunch of video courses. Uh, today we have over 300 uh, recorded videos out there. Uh, constantly expanding with new topics. Uh, recently we've added some on uh, PSS, which is property specification link, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, <laughs> portable stimulus yeah, uh, standard. Right, yeah. And then we've, we've added uh, 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 new topics on safety and a lot of, you know, these hot topics that are, that are emerging. Um, but we've also created uh, cookbooks because if you think about it, uh, UVM is non-trivial. It, <laughs> it takes a lot to mature skills sure. there. And so we've added specific cookbooks on that or coverage driven techniques um, as well as added a forum out there where engineers all over the world can ask questions and other engineers uh, someplace else might answer it so uh, this whole community has has come out and um yeah I, i'm just 
just really surprised and amazed how it's taken off. Yeah, what what is really nice about the academy, you know, uh, Axomize is a member of it. You know, I, I've contributed to Verification Horizons blog. It seems like it's a very open, transparent framework where people who have something useful to contribute can can do so, and there is no real uh, allegiance to mentor graphics as such or, or anything. You know, this is not about marketing. This is about actually disseminating technical know-hows about things that affect day-to-day design verification, which is, I think, the, the best part of the academy. Uh, it's, it's a very open institution, uh, which is uh, fascinating. And, and uh, having started Axomize only a couple of years ago, I do understand how hard it is to start building these pieces from scratch. So I can totally relate to, to some of the early challenges you must have faced uh, when you kicked off the academy. So Harry, one interesting thing I picked up recently was your blog on FPGA, uh, which I think you were sharing about a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I, in fact, picked up that this was uh, prepared not specifically uh, with any reason, but you were going to give a talk in Norway. Um, you were invited to give a talk. So tell us, uh, what is this blog about and uh, how did this come into being? Well, so the, the blog essentially is uh, promoting a recording I put out on the Verification Academy. And, and so stepping back, I was invited to give a keynote at this year's FPGA forum in Norway. And my topic was basically on uh, FPGA maturity in terms of verification processes. And it was this quantitative analysis I, I had done on it uh, based on one of my recent studies. And then when I went to DVCom, because there, there was a, a number of uh, sessions that were canceled, I was asked if I could redo that, um, uh, basically, keynote, mm-hmm. uh, which I did. And I had a lot of requests uh, could, if people could get a copy of it. So what I did was recorded it and put it out, out on the Academy. But the, but the main topic that I talk about there is um, uh, some interesting trends related to FPGAs. Uh, for example, in... In the ASIC world, we have this notion of spin or number of respins, and we use that to basically as a metric to measure the effectiveness of the verification and validation process. Uh, we don't have a similar type notion in FPGAs, and it's always frustrated me because you really can't tell how effective are these guys really in their overall process of verification and validation. Indeed. So. Yeah, so two years, uh, two studies ago, starting in 2016, I introduced this question targeted at the FPGA participants. Uh, since I couldn't ask them how many spins, I asked them, uh, did you have a non-trivial bug escape into production? And I was somewhat alarmed by what I found in 2016, where only 22% of FPGA projects were able to achieve no bug escapes into production. Wow. Uh, and that grew in 2018, uh, uh, or actually shrank, uh, where only 16% of FPGA projects were able to achieve uh, no bug escapes in production. Um, the, the significance about that is that there are some market segments, such as Miro, where if you take the cover off the uh, system to update, upgrade the FPGA, you have to revalidate the entire system, which the cost can be enormous. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so this mentality, oh, we can just simply fix the FPGA, uh, starts <laughs> to fall apart. Yeah. Um, and so the the other interesting thing I did in in this uh, last study was, I then looked at the FPGA projects and partitioned into two independent groups. Uh, one group 
had no bug escapes into production, and the other group had bug escapes in production. I then did an analysis on what type of verification techniques they, they, they had adopted, because that was something I had from the study. And what clearly came out of this was that uh, projects that were mature in their verification processes, uh, adopting formal, adopting constrained random, you know, all these different techniques, they were um, uh, uh, statistically significant uh, in terms of uh, uh, having no bug escapes into production. Sure. Uh, in other words, these techniques do work. <laughs> so, so I actually could quantify that. Um, so, so anyway, so that's what the blog was about, um, uh, talk, talking about uh, the recording I had uh, done on this. Incidentally, so I do have recording out on Verification Academy. I also have uh, papers published at IEEE on their uh, Explore uh, that was originally from MTV that spoke only on FPGA trends. Um, and the reason I'm somewhat excited about this, there's a lot of industry studies that have been done on ASIC ICs, but Correct. very few on FPGAs. So Correct, this yeah. is one of the first published uh, papers uh, specifically focused on FPGA verification trends. In fact, uh, I would strongly recommend uh, our listeners to go and check these things out. And I think you and I should actually talk about FPGAs on a, on a specific uh, chat thread because um, I've been following the development of FPGAs ever since my student days. And what I've come to see is that they are the next big thing that's going to happen in the way custom hardware and custom systems are being built and so it's a good time to understand what makes these things work successfully and as you said become an early adopter of the best uh, practices uh, so it's not rocket science yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not rocket yeah, science but you know again one of these things that a lot not a lot of people actually understand how to get on with these yeah, things. and what's interesting now in the FPGA space is there's this growing trend uh, about doing these uh, uh, basically accelerators for uh, the data center. Um, they might be some sort of AI accelerator or, or other type of accelerators. So, uh, yeah, the, the market is really just taken off. Yeah, yeah, it is a fascinating topic. Um, so actually, you mentioned something about the surveys, and I wanted to pick you up on that one. So every couple of years, you carry out a big study across the industry, across the world. Tell us a little bit more about this, because I'm not sure all our listeners actually are aware about it. Uh, I'm personally aware about it, but it would be nice to elaborate on the specifics of these studies. Yeah, so in 2002 and 2004, uh, Ron Collette International did a bunch of uh, well-referenced uh, uh, industry studies on verification, uh, functional verification. And unfortunately, after 2004, uh, uh, Ron International stopped doing those. And, and so we had this void in mm -hmm. the industry of understanding what are the trends, what's happening in terms of functional verification. So uh, Minter picked this up in 2007, and we wanted to maintain this as a uh, credible study uh, in the sense that it's a double-line study. The participants in the study are not exclusively mentor uh, customers. Uh, uh, customers, and that's a key point. Otherwise, it'd be a biased study. Absolutely. Um, and so it's, in a way, a somewhat double-line in that this pool is put together, uh, targeted for the study, um, 
And then I do the analysis, and I don't know who, like, were you from ARM or Intel, whatever. I don't know uh, where you were from when you answered the question, when I do the analysis. We do these studies every two years. The last one we completed in 2018. I'm in the process of putting together the 2020 study, which will kick off um, in, in a few months here. Um, these studies are also, a lot goes into it to ensure the integrity of the study. For example, it's not just an open invite, uh, go tell your buddies to go fill this thing out 50 sure. times or something. Yeah. There, there is a, a, a key that's given that can only be used one time. Um, and, uh, and as I said, a lot goes into ensuring the integrity of the study. Um, so if people were interested in uh, reading about the studies, uh, if, if you go to the Verification Horizon blog, I have a whole series that covers um, all the studies that I've done, and, and so you can get data on the previous studies. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very important uh, piece of work in our field because there's really nothing else out there that gives this kind of information about developing trends, trends that work well for customers, where is the industry going. Um, so hats off to you, man, for actually pulling this off so well and for so long. Uh, and as I said, all of this... Uh, making a double blind and preventing, uh, you know, orchestrating this in an uh, you know unbiased way. You know, this is all, all hard work. Um, very nice. So, one thing that's always um, you know been on my mind is um, depending on who you talk to and which customer you talk to, they will say that top verification challenges are oh, emulation is not very fast, formal doesn't really work, or simulation is, is not giving me enough coverage. Um, and, and, and it is understandable that depending on uh, which customer you're talking to, they have unique challenges. But I cannot think of any other better person <laughs> to ask this question other than you. If you were actually saying, what were the top verification challenges based on your experience, based on the numerous studies that you've seen, what do you think is blocking the industry in adopting the best of simulation, emulation, formal, or FPGA? Uh, can you tell us how to, to move faster? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's important to recognize today that there's uh, uh, no single silver bullet in verification. There's Indeed. not one single tool that we uh, can use that would basically address all issues that we're, we're trying to verify. And so really what's driving this, in my mind, is this explosion of new requirements uh, uh, that's happened over the past 10 to 15 years. Um, and, 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 and you think about that, where is that, you know, we started years ago, we focused predominantly on the functionality. We started adding clocking requirements, power requirements, safety, sure. security, performance, and now even software. It's just this explosion. So the reality is uh, it's, it's no single tool that we can uh, use. We need all these different tools. I think one of the problems I see is that many projects don't put in place a verification architect who's looking uh, holistically across the flow and, and understands, and not necessarily an expert on all these different uh, techniques, technology, but they understand the appropriate time to use them, when to use them, when not to use them, how to put together a total flow, and then how to plan for that. Um, that's uh, something I'll harp on a lot. I know you've harped on it a lot too. Uh, uh, yeah, many yeah. cases, 
uh, a lot of failures we see is the fact that there wasn't uh, proper planning done. Uh, uh, particularly with formal, uh, a lot of cases I see uh, somebody will pick up a formal tool, I want to try it out, they're real excited about it, they write some ad hoc assertions, <laughs> The end of the day, they clearly don't show any return on investment, and they didn't plan for it. So uh, planning is very important. And then the, the other aspect is maturing skills. I think a lot of companies um, uh, don't put enough emphasis on that in terms of maturing skills. Uh, uh, an example I like to give there is that if I were going to sell you, let's say, a simulator that did constrained, random, coverage-driven uh, verification, that all sounds good, and ask the question, would you succeed? The chances are probably pretty low until your organization develops uh, uh, object-oriented uh, skills as well as skills in system barrel log and, and uh, UVM. Sure. Uh, once you de develop those skills, yes, you'll get uh, the most out of the tool. The same is true like informal. Uh, if you don't develop the proper skills about, you know, a proper way of writing properties, uh, constraints, uh, how to uh, introduce abstractions when needed, uh, knowing what to verify, <laughs> yeah. putting in place uh, metrics to measure success. Um, without all these, it's hard to uh, get get an ROI. So I think that's really, in my mind, the, the biggest challenge is is to address addressing the planning aspect and developing skills to, to make get the most of, out of all these technologies. The reality is we need them all today uh, because there is no single silver bullet. So, so, in a sense, what you're saying is it's understanding the scope of these individual verification technologies and how do you combine them, but planning and process um, and skill development all have to be considered in holistic manner, not just um, by a specific expert in a specific verification technology area. In fact, you know, Harry's last week's podcast, I was actually talking about some of these issues because I feel the same way that actually, yes, um, all of these technologies are great simulation, formal emulation, but none of these on their own can actually solve all the verification challenges. and. I don't personally believe that actually um, any one person in the world even knows this answer of what would be a universal way of combining these things because the context in which these things have to be combined varies so widely. Um, it's absolutely fascinating when you see these things being combined in a genuinely interesting way because then you can see that it can be done. But most organizations, I think, are still trying to, to understand just some of these, not all yet, right? I, and I know from formal side, yeah. there's still a lot of catch up to do. And for UVM as well, I think people have been using UVM, but have they been using properly uh, and, and in a holistic way? Is anybody's yeah, guess? Yeah, I, I think there's some fundamental principles that probably, uh, 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 well, not probably, I'm sure that basically uh, would go across many different projects. Uh, but then again, there's a lot of domain knowledge that's required specific to the project to figure out the effective combination of the way you, these these technologies interact. And that's, again, uh, a very unique skill. And that's the reason I, I find often that uh, projects that do have a verification architect uh, do much better than those don't because they can look across this and understand not only the technologies and, and I have in this, uh, this set of tools, but also uh, uh, the domain knowledge specific to what I'm trying to verify. 
Indeed. So, Harry, I just wanted to touch upon formal verification a little bit. It would be hard for me not to talk about formal. <laughs> but, um, you know, you're not a PhD in formal verification and you have uh, defined assertion languages, as you pointed out. You've used them. You have talked about successful deployment. How did it all happen? How did you get interested in formal? I know I've read your article, which was about being a vegetarian and being a formal verification person. Both are quite hard <laughs> activities. We all know we should be doing it, but not, not enough of us do it. Um, so how did this happen? How did you end up being so successful at formal without being a PhD? Well, so what happened was in uh, I was working for a supercomputer company back in the late 80s, Convex Computer Corporation. Uh, ultimately, they were acquired by Hewitt Packard, but um, at that point in time, uh, we were moving from gate level design to RTL uh, design, <laughs> and we saw this tremendous increase in productivity, about, as you can imagine, for doing design. At the same time, we saw our gate level simulations increase, you know, uh, one or two orders of magnitude uh, due to the productivity and design that actually... Uh, uh, Put the burden on verification. So I started touring with the idea of creating what we call now is equivalence checking. I didn't. I didn't know at that point in time there really wasn't much written <laughs> yeah. on it. Yeah. And and so uh, my background in there uh, prior to that I was creating tools that uh, basically pattern generates A two A two B G for oh, yeah. tests. Mm -hmm. So what I, so what I did was I took. Uh, two versions of design, an RTL uh, version and a gate level, connected together with an exclusive org, and creating what we now know as a MITRE. <laughs> and then I took the algorithms I had uh, developed uh, for ATBG and, and, and tried this out. Right. And the funny thing was, that, uh, oh, sure, I could, uh, I could prove equivalence or actually find bugs um, on toy circuits. And, and so and then I started digging a little bit deeper. And at this point in time, you, as you are aware, um, BDD started to, to come about. Sure. And so I started trying out BDD engines uh, as well as uh, trying some other techniques. For example, uh, taking the uh, cone of logic into the design and finding cuts that I could basically, uh, basically uh, identify as a potential equivalent signal pairs. So I could really shrink the problem down, and then all of a sudden, wow! Yeah, we we could uh, prove uh, amazing things with this combination of uh, uh, BDDs and, and and partitioning the de uh, design down into smaller pieces. Uh, and then by 1993, we completely gave up gate level simulation. <laughs> so that was the beginning of my uh, understanding about formal. So then I started exploring in in terms of uh, model checking. And, of course, in the 90s, we, you know, uh, the, the, the tools were just, <laughs> by today's standards, really toys. Yeah, um, true. Uh, and, and there were a few commercial companies that came about. And, and, and so, but the, the good thing about this was that it led to development of assertion-based verification, which is not only formal, it's also uh, benefits in terms of simulation. Absolutely. And so, although at this point in time, we didn't see the benefits in formal, we did see uh, benefits in reducing debug time. Uh, uh, but uh, that led into my work with, um, uh, you know, temporal logics and assertion language uh, standardization. Um, so, that's basically the history there. And then, then I went to work for Verplex. Again, my background was equivalence checking. 
um, and I worked with them on both uh, model checking and uh, equipment checking. Uh, from there, I went and worked at uh, Jasper for a while before I went to Mentor. So that's my roadmap. Um, but this is really, really fascinating, Harry, because um, not having a background through academic qualifications informally, your whole career is, is a proof uh, in a non-mathematical way that you can actually um, you know, have a thriving career based around applications of formal and slowly get to know the in-house and, and uh, fascinating history. You talked about equivalence checking. And of course, a lot of us now take all of this for granted. When we're doing synthesis between gate level and RTL, we don't even think twice. I've come across a lot of people when I was teaching them formal, they often think of formal as just equivalence checking between gate level and, and RTL. And, and they're not wrong in that way, but uh, it's, it's, it's just absolutely fantastic. So Harry, um, I would like to uh, wrap up our chat today, but before I um, wrap up, I wanted our listeners today to take away five tips from you to uh, become productive with their design verification and tell us uh, what it should be if you only had to give five. Okay, uh, only five. I think first of all is don't ignore process and methodology. Uh, that is so fundamental. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I did listen to your blog last week, and there was an excellent discussion on that. But but that's typically something that's ignored, and and it's uh, generally, in my mind, creates the, the, the uh, biggest problem. Uh, the other thing is uh, a recommendation would be like constantly triage the process and, and figure out where the strengths and weaknesses are. For example, if if um, you find a bug, let's say uh, running emulation. The question the team should always ask: Should we have found this earlier? And if so, what? How can we modify the process so we can find it earlier? There are certain times where you can't find bugs earlier, particularly if it requires integration of hardware and software. But that's a very important question to ask, and I don't see it asked enough. Um, it's the only way that you can refine and improve the process. Um, and then it's important to introduce metrics into the process. Um, we think of metrics you know, often as coverage, but that's pretty simplistic. Some, some have bug rates, that's, that's important. Um, bug density uh, is actually important too. You can get insights very quickly about, oh, we're gonna have problems in this particular uh, portion of the design. Is it something to do with the way the uh, a design is architect designed or is it uh, we've got a junior person that we need help there anyway it's it's answering those type questions uh, regression performance there's a lot of metrics uh, that that should be introduced in process a process without metrics is useless because you don't know if it's effective so uh, I, I think that's that's a very important uh, the the fourth thing would be we, we parked on this day the importance of developing skills within the organization uh, you really can't take advantage of any of these advanced techniques without building the proper skills. So that's pretty fundamental. And then the final thing I think goes back to kind of like what we opened up this discussion is that find a passion and pursue it. Um, uh, again, people without passion are boring. And uh, there's there's a lot of passionate people in verification, whether it's formal or whatever, uh, but but it's it's important to pursue that passion. Wow, yeah, that, that's, that's a really nice um, uh, summary of these five tips. I am happy to say that I relate to a lot of these. 
but yeah, I would like to thank you, Harry, for your time today. Uh, I know you're a very busy person and you've got a lot going on. Uh, so you spared this time for us. We're very grateful. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would enjoy this podcast and we would very much look forward to welcoming you back and, and dive deep on some of these topics. So thank you very much. Thank you. So if you like today's podcast, please let us know. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, ping us at info at And most importantly, stay home, stay fit, stay healthy. And we will get back to you next week. Take care.